Arctic expeditions, sun vacations, and super guns. And it just struck me that, that in many ways what he was writing about without writing about it explicitly were um, aspects of the modern and the way in which science and technology ended up contributing to an understanding of the modern and the development of modernity within Canada. A conversation with editors and contributors for a new collection on histories of science, technology, and the modern in Canada. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to episode 67 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. In 2015, colleagues of the late Richard Jarrell organized a conference at York University in his memory to honor his many contributions to the field of the history of science and technology in Canada. What emerged from that conference were a number of papers that examined the intersections of science, technology, and modernity in Canadian history. Tina Adcock from Simon Fraser University and Edward Jones Imhotep from York University edited those papers and published them in a new book called Made Modern, Science and Technology in Canadian History. I spoke with Tina and Edward about this fascinating book, and we were joined by another one of the contributors, Blair Stein, to explore some of the emerging scholarship on the history of science and technology in modern Canada. Uh, Well, I'm Tina Adcock, and I work at Simon Fraser University. I'm Edward Jones Imhotep. I'm an associate professor at York University. And I'm Blair Stein. I'm assistant professor of history at Clarkson University. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us to tell us uh, more about this exciting new edited collection, Made Modern Science and Technology in Canadian History from UBC Press. Um, I've got with me two, uh, the two editors for this collection, Tina and Edward, and uh, Blair Stein, who's one of the contributors. Uh, and I wanted to start off, I guess, by asking um, maybe Edward or Tina um, what the origins of the edited collection were. How did you come to the theme? How did you recruit the contributors? Did you want to handle this, Tina, or I can go ahead if you'd like? Uh, why don't you go ahead, Edward? Sure. Um, so the originally, this basically comes out of a conference uh, that was organized uh, some years back in 2015. <clears throat> and the occasion for the conference was actually uh, the very sudden passing away of a close colleague of mine, Richard Gerald, uh, who's one of the central figures in the history of Canadian science and technology. Uh, and so we decided to, or I decided to organize a conference. Um, partly it was to, to kind of you know, do justice basically to, to Rich Gerald's legacy, but also um, I thought it might be interesting to use some of the themes in his own work, uh, but to recast them around questions that he himself didn't ask, but that his his own research ended up raising. So Rich was very interested in questions about kind of institutions and education and disciplines and professionalization and political power, technical communities, things like this. Um, and it just struck me that, that in many ways what he was writing about without writing about it explicitly were um, aspects of the modern and the way in which science and technology ended up contributing to an understanding of the modern and the development of modernity within Canada. Uh, And so I invited a number of people whose work I thought uh, was fantastic and interesting. Um, And we convened at York uh, in April of 2015 for this conference. Uh, But a conference, as you know, isn't a book. Um, And so the the book itself ended up... um, 
taking kind of slowly shape after that, I invited uh, Tina, whose work I admired and thinking I admired very much already to collaborate with me as a, as an editor on this. Um, and it was really her idea basically to end up organizing the book according to um, these three main themes that we have in the book as well. Um, and so that was uh, great fun and it ended up actually going very, very smoothly. And you know, what you have in front of you is, uh, are the fruits of that labor. Edward, could you just outline the three themes for listeners, just sure. for those who haven't seen the book yet? Sure. So the the, the book is organized around uh, bodies as part one, technologies as part two, and environments as part three. Um, and those aren't meant to be kind of hermetic categories. That is that, you know, as we were editing the, the book, we saw that there were a number of papers that could, in principle, at least kind of fit into uh, a number of different categories. But there are really ways of just kind of organizing uh, the material in a way that we thought was kind of evocative. Um, but again, the, the themes themselves cut across one another. So this book has given me a lot to think about when it comes to the relationship between um, science and technology and modernity in Canada. Tina, I wondered if you could tell us uh, some of your thoughts about um, what you think are the most significant insights the collection reveals about uh, that relationship between histories of technology and modernity in Canada. Sure. Uh, and I don't want to monopolize the floor. So let me just offer one thought. Um, I think one of the major things that the collection sort of uh, seeks to emphasize is that these aren't just Canadian stories. So earlier scholarship in this field, uh, following then current historiographical thinking, often sought to identify a national or a Canadian style of techno-scientific development of sort of doing science and technology in this country. Um, and by contrast, in Made Modern, and again inspired by various more than national turns in the historical discipline, uh, our authors follow knowledge and actors and practices in and out of the country. And they try to demonstrate how Canadian science and technology inflected and was in turn inflected by things that were happening elsewhere uh, in the United States, in Europe, and even farther afield in places like the Caribbean and Iraq. So I, I'd like to get into some of the content of the book. And Tina, I'll stick with you here um, to talk about uh, your chapter. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, in the case study that you present here, how you define boundary making and how this idea came into play in the licensing of scientific expeditions in the Canadian Arctic in the interwar period. Sure. So the title of my chapter includes the term boundary work, and this is a term coined by the sociologist of science, Thomas Jiren. And boundary work refers to the socio-political processes by which certain actors, activities, and places are deemed credible producers of scientific knowledge, and how others are excluded from the terrain of science and sort of devalued accordingly. So like any historical phenomenon, uh, boundary work is time and place sensitive. So paying attention to it helps us better understand what science looks like and how it functions in practice. So who gets to be recognized as a scientist and who doesn't? Um, which methods and objects and ways of engaging the world count as scientific and do which don't? Uh, and why? So in 1925, Canada's colonial northern administration created what became known as the Scientists and Explorers Ordinance. And this specified that all such field workers had to obtain permission from the federal government before carrying out their investigations in the Northwest Territories, uh, which were and are the indigenous homelands known as Denaday and Nunavut. 
So bureaucrats had invented this ordinance to solve a political problem. Uh, the increased numbers of foreign expeditions journeying north, which had the potential to trouble Canada's sovereign claims to the region. But the ordinance created an epistemic, an intellectual problem, in that bureaucrats now had to figure out who exactly counted as a scientist or explorer and to issue or deny them licenses accordingly. So importantly, the ordinance prohibited fieldworks from carrying out commercial or political activities. So sportsmen or spies were, to riff off the title of one of Timothy Findlay's novels, not wanted in the Northwest Territories. So my chapter tells the story of two expeditions to the Eastern Canadian Arctic by the American publisher George Putnam Palmer that looked scientific, but were entangled with sport in ways that eventually proved problematic. And it's it's a really interesting case study that you present here. And I think it introduces something I hadn't really thought about when it comes to, um, I guess, like nation building or sovereignty and mm -hmm. science. So could you tell us a little bit about the ways in which you see those two things mix, the idea of national sovereignty and science? Sure, absolutely. And I also just want to correct myself as I realized I have reversed the two surnames of my main character. It's George Palmer Putnam. <laughs> so just a footnote there. Uh, so, so yeah, sovereignty and science. So there's a few ways uh, in which I think the case study kind of brings out the relationship between the two. So first of all, scientific or exploratory activity has traditionally formed one of the vectors by which settler colonial states have asserted claims to indigenous homelands in the circumpolar Arctic or subarctic. So in this case, the ordinance not only helped ward off the specter of sovereignty threatened, but it also placed foreign scientists and explorers in a relationship of compulsory reciprocity with the Canadian government. So basically, this meant that to obtain a permit, uh, they had to submit a report of their scientific findings and a list of specimens that they'd taken. So this meant that foreign field workers actually helped Canada consolidate and enhance its intellectual as well as political control over its Arctic territories at a time when the federal government was allocating very little money itself to field science in the region. Mm -hmm. I guess the thing that surprised me most at first was that colonial bureaucrats really didn't want to be put in the position where they had to decide who was and wasn't a scientist. Like this was not at all what they anticipated having to do, but it was the corner that they backed themselves into once they passed this ordinance. And I think especially at first, um, as my case study shows, they sometimes got it wrong, at least by the standards they were making up as they went along. Was it a kind of unintended consequence of a policy that was, I guess, initially intended for um, protecting Canadian sovereignty, but inadvertently created a bureaucratic system for judging who was a scientist and who wasn't? It absolutely was an unintended consequence. And it was one that, you know, the civil servants just weren't trained to handle and didn't want to handle. So of course, they, le they leaned on scientists in the civil service. So, you know, people at the Victoria Memorial Museum and at the Geological Survey and things like that. But even so, like, this really does sort of elucidate that science is not and never was a fixed concept. You know, uh, they really were just making up who was and wasn't a scientist by their lights as they went along. Right. And I wonder too, just in your reading of the documents, to what extent do you think the American expeditions were 
uh, sincere in their belief that they were scientific, even if they were sort of caught in the in this example of you know hunting and doing stuff that they weren't supposed to be doing. Do you think that they were surreptitiously or, or misrepresenting themselves as a scientific expedition to cover up what was a tourism expedition? Um, or do you think the the ambiguity of the meaning of science and scientific expedition in the North is really what was at play? That's a really great question, Sean. Um, and so I think that I think that you've put your finger on something really important in not only this case study but this time period generally, as it pertains to kind of Arctic science and, ex- and exploration. Which is that okay? So first of all, you know, exploration uh, expeditions could have many different things going on at once, right? There could be many different reasons why people wanted to go to the Arctic. So it's important not to kind of fall into the trap of seeing things through the eyes of actors categories and not to kind of assume that science and sport were necessarily always opposed, right? They, they very comfortably coexisted, not only on Putnam's expeditions, but also on other American, Canadian and European expeditions to the north at this time. So I think what my chapter is kind of trying to do more generally is push back against certain teleologies of professionalization that often accompany discussions of Arctic exploration and science in the 20th century. So there's this kind of pernicious assumption that sort of exploration just naturally gives way to science at some point. Um, Sometimes kind of around 1918 is often like the the sort of the, the perceived turning point. Uh, and my work really pushes back against that sort of uncritical teleology that we like to tell about sort of when exploration got displaced by science. But I think what it also just tries to do is to take what people say that they are doing seriously, if that makes any sense. So I guess what mm-hmm. I mean is that not to just assume, as some people have argued about explorers uh, of the Arctic in this period, that they were just kind of using science as an excuse or a veil uh, for what they actually wanted to do with sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, adventurous sort of uh, tourism in the Arctic, but to take basically take seriously their claims that they were actually interested in creating new knowledge about the region. So I think that's partly what I'm trying to do um, in this chapter as well, and in my work more generally. And your chapter appears in part one, bodies. But as Edward said uh, at the top of the interview here, these are not, you know, discrete, hermetically separate uh, sections of the book. And I think there is, um, there's, there's much between your chapter and Edward's chapter, I think, especially around this idea of definitions and boundary making. So uh, I wanted to ask Edward uh, about his case study um, of uh, Gerald Bull, uh, and whether or not he thinks that um, this is just an extraordinary case study or do you think that the issues around technological ambiguity, scientific instruments and weapons are revealing of something more significant for understanding the histories of science and modernity in Canada? Uh, I, the short answer, I think, is both. Uh, so basically, <laughs> I think, because in many ways, I do think that Gerald Bull is a pretty extraordinary case. So maybe I'll just say a little bit about him for people who might not be familiar with him. So um, Bull was basically um, kind of born in North Bay, Ontario, but he, he's basically an aeronautical uh, ballistics engineer by training. Um, and he becomes very early on the youngest PhD in Canadian history in uh, about 1950, graduates at the age of 22 or 23. Uh, that record might have been broken 
broken. Uh, by <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But the point is that um, he basically ends up uh, developing this dream to launch satellites from very, very powerful cannons uh, from the surface of the Earth. So to build a huge cannon located somewhere on the surface of the Earth and then basically shoot satellites until they actually go into orbit high enough and fast enough so that they go into orbit around the Earth. Um, and he isn't able to do that initially, but he starts to develop the idea through uh, this very famous project called the High Altitude Research Project, the HARP project, which he develops as a professor at McGill um, in aeronautics engineering. Um, and this, the project gets shut down in the late 1960s. And as a result of this, Bull basically finds himself a little bit out of work um, and decides that he's going to start a kind of weapons consulting uh, company uh, and ends up trading arms to apartheid South Africa, which gets him thrown in a U.S. jail. Uh, and then when he comes out, he continues his business, but eventually is approached, in fact, by um, agents of Saddam Hussein uh, to develop a, a, super, a super gun, an enormous cannon for Iraq. Um, and so he starts to do work for them, and then he's assassinated outside of his Brussels apartment in 1990. Um, and so that's that's a pretty remarkable story. Um, but it, it, it harkens back a little bit to the question uh, that you asked and that Tina answered so nicely about uh, the insights that this collection basically has about the relationship between histories of technology and modernity in Canada. One of the things that drew me to the story of Bull in the first place um, is not is partly its atypicality. That is that in one of the things that modernity does over and over again is to create the kinds of master narratives, these relatively tight stories about and with over, a kind of single overarching narrative about how things develop. <clears throat> and, and what I love about Bull's story is that it breaks with so many of the kind of preconceptions that we have about um, Canadian scientists, what science is like in Canada uh, during the Cold War, the place of Canada in the kind of international sphere. Um, and so in that way, I think that he is in many ways um, extraordinary. But at the same time, you know, he, he does lay out these fascinating themes or his study lays out these fascinating themes that I think say uh, something about not only science, the history of science and modernity, but maybe about the history of modernity more generally. So you hit on this idea about the ambiguity between scientific instruments uh, and weapons. Mm -hmm. And that that ambiguity itself is actually, um, Bruno Latour has written about this, a, a much more general kind of anxiety that the modern period has about hybridity. So part of what modernity is about is a kind of purification. Um, and the form that that takes in science is an attempt to mark off science from other forms of, of human endeavor. So uh, science versus technology, science versus politics, and so forth. Um, but within science, um, there's also the tendency to, to not tolerate very well things that don't fall into relatively neat categories. So the way that science works often is to abstract from the kind of uh, richness and variety of the world uh, into these kind of relatively universalized categories. So not, you know, what does this specific plant look like in this place at this time, but what do, what, what do all plants share? Not what does this animal, for instance, um, end up, you know, looking like or behaving like in this particular moment, but what do all animals end up sharing? And so that, that kind of purification cuts across not only science, but also about the kind of intolerance that the modern period has towards racial hybridity, towards gender hybridity. So it's part really of a much, much more general um, story that I think we're all trying to tell in our various chapters about what characterizes uh, modernity in some way and how it is that science contributes part of that story, but also how it is that all these kinds of other human activities interact and reinforce and sometimes contradict these kinds of scientific impulses. And yet that, that impulse to purify and define science, you suggest in the chapter, is shaped in some pretty profound ways by the historical context. Um, particularly given the extended time period that you cover in the case of yeah. 
bull. So can you talk a little bit about how you see historical context influencing the meaning of scientific work, um, at least through what you observe in bull and his guns? Yeah, sure. So the, the, the thing that, um, again, I found really a bit startling about bull is that the, the way to generally end up contextualizing something like his, his case uh, within the history of science, traditionally at least, would be to to, to set your sights relatively narrowly. So to look, for instance, at, you know, Bull's institutions and his upbringing and his training and possibly go as broad as the kind of political context within Canada in the years that he works, um, but usually not to go any further than that. And it struck me that that, that actually wasn't a very good way to understand what was going on with Bull's story, that instead... Um, there were there were kind of three intersecting historical contexts that work actually on different time scales, um, and that both stories really at the intersection of those three. So one is a, a relatively long time scale, in fact, going back to the 17th century, which is about the kind of mm-hmm. cultural history of of things like projectiles and how it is. Um, and this goes back to your previous question: how it is that they tend to straddle uh, the the line between scientific instruments and weapons? Um, and that's so that's a much longer history and a very rich history. But it's really important, I think, to understand. And, uh, bull story. And then the second one is a kind of a medium term um, historical context, which goes back to the 19th century and is a kind of cultural geography of islands. So what, what kinds of places do islands represent? What kind, what, what about their colonial history ends up turning them in to the kinds of things that end up uh, playing an important part in Bull's story? So he sets up this harp gun on the island of Barbados, but it turns out that not only the, the short history of Barbados, but also the longer history of how islands are treated leading up up to the Cold War is an important part of that story. Um, and then the third context is this much, much, much shorter, much tighter time frame of the two decades roughly after the Second World War uh, and about the history of rationality during that period and how it is that the, especially the tension between rationality and reason plays an important part in the way that Bull not only presents um, his his argument for his guns, but also the way in which his arguments ultimately become c- completely implausible after about the late 1960s because of a kind of a, shi- a shift in the cultural context. Um, and so that seemed to me like the, the best way actually to end up understanding Bull's story um, that is a, a kind of historical context that not only works on kind of three temporal registers, but also that works on very different spatial registers. You know, that one, you know, you're talking about a, a kind of multinational history of science and, and, and ballistics, and then this kind of other multinational global history of islands, um, and then this relatively North American story about rationality during the Cold War. It's an excellent case study. All readers should read this. They should read all the chapters in the book. But um, it was uh, there's a there's a section that I really like the discussion about the history of ballistics in uh, scientific uh, study, uh, particularly in physics. I hadn't even made that connection, uh, and I had known about the bull case, but then I thought, oh yeah, like if some basic principles of physics are based around the idea of firing a bullet. Yeah, very much so. And in fact, I only included um, just a very few of the of the case studies that I could have incorporated, or like the examples that I could have incorporated in there. But there are many, 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 many more. Um, and in fact, they they are some of the most important experiments and thought experiments in all of physics. So if you take physics courses, you always end up learning about you know Galileo and cannonballs, for instance, or about Newton, for instance, and ballistics. And so that seemed to me something that's important that historians of science actually haven't written a lot about. That is, that they write about it in a kind of unconscious, slightly self-reflective, unreflective way, 
but it seemed to me that focusing precisely on um, the really tense relationship that physics has with violence uh, and warfare, not not just kind of generatively, so not just that you need physics in order to figure out how to make weapons stronger, but as part of the kind of cultural imagination of physics, that, that violence and warfare are actually central to the way in which physicists continue to do their work and they think through uh, their world and their approach to the world. That seemed to me important. So, Edward, your chapter's in part two, technologies. Uh, now I want to turn to part three, environments, and uh, ask Blair about uh, your chapter, Blair, on um, TransCanada Airlines. Um, how do you see the technology of commercial aircraft in terms of uh, its influence on Canadian identity in the post-war years? Well, in general, flying in an airplane changes the human relationship to the land that the airplane is flying over. If you've ever flown commercially with someone who's never flown on an airplane before, they are always eager to look out the window. Flying over a landscape and seeing that landscape from above makes us reevaluate that relationship. And that experience, that sort of rhetoric, looking out of windows and seeing the land from above from an airplane, is really largely a product of developments in air travel technology that were developed as part of the Second World War, but diffused out into civilian technologies afterwards. Uh, things such as pressurized cabins, uh, Loran long-range navigation, weather equipment, increased uh, communications technologies, and later, eventually, jet propulsion increased the range of the aircraft. They could fly farther, increased the speed of the aircraft, increased the operational ceiling. That is, they could fly higher. Um, and it made air travel a more viable option for increasing numbers of everyday travelers. At TransCanada Airlines, the airplane that featured all of these things was something called the Canadair DC-4M North Star, which is a symbolic name, if I've ever heard one. Um, <laughs> and it was essentially custom made for TransCanada Airlines and the Royal Canadian Air Force. And since TransCanada Airlines was a crown corporation, the, this was essentially a custom made Canadian government airplane. And so this increased accessibility of air travel, thanks to the new technologies on the North Star, and these, these sort of rhetoric of new perspectives on the land from looking out of the windows, is what was vital to the changing Canadian experiences of nature and nation. Canadian settler national identity, which I like to argue everywhere I write, has an envirotechnical premise. That is, it requires the perceptions of vast distances and also technological mastery over those distances in order to be resonant. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, this appears in rhetoric about rail. That's where Maurice Charlon likes to talk about technological nationalism. We like trains in Canada an awful lot. <laughs> but I like to approach it from the airplane's perspective. Um, the experience of flying, which was made easier and more accessible on the North Star, both established and destabilized this enviro-technical foundation. Mm -hmm. Because airplanes went so high, so far, so and so fast, they didn't just connect vast distances, they collapsed them down into nothing. And I argue that airplanes 
are sort of modern in this sense, that they throw perceptions of space and time into disarray, shrinking Canada, which is supposed to be impossibly large, down to something that only took a few hours to traverse. And because TCA was a state airline, it was torn between balancing these fragile kind of envirotechnical structures of Canadian settler national identity while technologically subverting them, flying people all over the country and eventually to lots of other places too. This is what I like most, I think, about your chapter, that at the outset in reading it, I thought, okay, I'm going to be looking at the next version of um, Harold Innes' arguments about um, communications and transportation and national identity. But as you suggest here, um, it's, it's, there's a tension or a contradiction at play here. This technology can be both nationalizing in some way by connecting St. John's to Vancouver, but highly disruptive and undermining of national identity. And I, and I, I guess in the in the chapter, as you start to talk about winter travel, that identity becomes destabilized even further. Um, so you you describe the rhetoric that TCA uses uh, in its advertising and promotion of winter air travel as shifting from a rhetoric that characterized winter travel to warm places as time travel to rhetoric that described that as escape. So uh, why did that rhetoric change? Well, the, the short answer is the ruse of the of people actually enjoying winter in Canada was just becoming more difficult to maintain. Um, Air Canada <laughs> still calls these tropical destinations that settler Canadians like to snowbird to in the winter. They call them sun destinations. And this gives us a hint into how they were imagined and constructed in Canadian discourse, along with the distance as part of uh, Canadian envirotechnical nationalism, climate is important too. Canadians are somehow supposed to be hardy wintertime people whose very national consciousness is stirred up by the snows. 19th century politicians and natural historians tried to draw connections back to the neo-Hippocratic doctrines of airs, waters, and places to support this. Canadians like to imagine themselves as cold weather people. So there's another tension and another paradox. How can Canadians be cold weather people while still flocking to Florida by the millions every winter? <laughs> and in the 1940s and 1950s, when TransCanada Airlines started introducing sun destination travel, the first destination was Bermuda. And by um, the middle part of the 1950s, they were going to Jamaica, the Bahamas, Barbados, a nice connection to Edwards chapter, um, and, and Florida. And travel to these places by air, and really travel anywhere by air, was still relatively novel. So airplanes were being described not just at TCA, but in airlines all over the place as sort of magic carpets, black boxes. We don't know how they work, but they, they really change the way we think about traveling. And because in the early part of the time period I study, the 1940s and 50s, TCA was still trying to support this sort of envirotechnical nationalism. It was trying to self-fashion as a natural heir to Rail's place in symbolic Canadianness. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't do that if it was deliberately removing Canadians from the winters that were supposed to be special and make them especially Canadian. So instead of replacing those 
important Canadian winters with the winter of another place, that is, leave winter in Canada, go to winter in, in Bermuda, there was the, the advertising department undertook some very delicate rhetorical gymnastics and built up the sort of discursive techniques in, in which passengers would instead shrink and stretch their summers <laughs> in such a way that still allowed them to experience Canadian winter. So instead of replacing our winters for someone else's, it was just giving you two more weeks of summer. Now, this just didn't hold up in the jet age. This delicate rhetorical ballet didn't work. Jet propulsion, especially in air transport, is really considered very closely connected to the perception of air travel as a form of mass transit, which which, um, we usually pin to the 1960s and 1970s. And jets were also part of a larger suite of technologies that divorced Canadians from the everyday material experiences of winter, which contributed to winter becoming a cultural construct rather than exclusively a season. That is, it's, it, it means more to us than, than, we, than, than it is when we live it. And the sheer volume of advertising material from the 1960s uh, once TransCanada Airlines started flying a lot of jets, um, meant that these delicate time travel discursive techniques just couldn't expand to fit the orders of magnitude. The majority of the advertising from TCA that has sort of remained in their archival holdings is Sun Destination, our Sun Destination campaigns from the 1960s. If I categorized it all, there's more of that than there is of anything else. And the delicate verbal, delicate uh, written techniques that were required to talk about winter as, an, as a stretching and shrinking of seasons rather than an exchange just didn't work in the jet age. It became easier to just show a parka, show a bikini and ask, which would you rather wear this winter? <laughs> <laughs> And is that, to some extent, do you see that as a shift in uh, the way that uh, some Canadians thought of their relationship to the seasons and to the climate? Yes, I I, I think so. Um, by the time we get to the end of the 1960s and the early part of the 1970s, the state really was beginning to analyze how Canadians liked to spend their leisure dollars and spend their leisure time. And, and we, we can celebrate being a winter people all we want in Canada, but the truth is Canadians visit Florida by the millions every, every winter. And we, th- there are plenty of debates in the House of Commons about how we can keep tourism dollars inside Canada, how we can make sure that this fleeing to warmer climes doesn't happen. And let's face it, January in Florida is generally much more comfortable than January in Calgary. <laughs> and there <laughs> and because of the variety of other mid-century technologies that changed the everyday relationships between Canadians and their outdoor surroundings regardless of the season, climate control, indoor garages, coordinated snow removal efforts in municipalities, This was taken as sort of a suite of dangerous winter erasing technologies that were taking Canadians away from their 
climatic roots, so to speak. So that's just a taste of what's in this book, I suppose. There are 13 chapters plus an introduction and an epilogue for readers to uh, dig into. But I I wanted to ask uh, everyone here in the interview, and Tina, maybe you can start us off. Um, After putting together this collection, uh, what do you think some of the future areas of research might be for further expanding our understanding of the histories of technology and the modern in Canada? That's a great question, Sean. Uh, So I've got a few thoughts here, um, although I'm obviously really interested to hear what my uh, collaborators say too. So one of them is in a forthcoming review of recent scholarship in the historical geographies of science, uh, Simon Naylor and Matthew Goodman point to the history of scientific data as a topic that needs more investigation, um, particularly in light of the contemporary vogue for big data. So when one of Made Modern's authors, uh, David Theodore, looks at a case study that involves mini computing, but I think this is a really interesting suggestion and that there is a lot more to be learned about data and its construction, uh, mobilization and interpretation in Canadian history. So that's one thought. Uh, I think another area of future research that deserves more attention um, is Indigenous knowledges and knowledge systems. Um, So here, I think historians of science and technology in Canada can help combat lingering perceptions among both scholars and the public uh, that such knowledges and systems have to be quote-unquote traditional or quote-unquote pre-modern to be truly Indigenous. Um, And as existing studies show, um, Indigenous knowledges and knowledge systems were dynamic, Uh, they were adaptive, they were resilient, they were resurgent in the modern era. So I think we need to know more about uh, Indigenous knowledges and knowledge systems um, as part of the history of science and technology in what is today Canada, of course, while at the same time acknowledging that some of these stories may not be meant for the ears of settler Canadians. So that's sort of another thought. And then I guess my last thought is that I would personally love to see more queer histories of science and technology in Canada, and also histories of disability as they pertain to science and technology in Canada. Edward, what do you think um, going forward from this book? Yeah, I can only agree with everything that that Tina said. Um, and there are, there are people who are doing kind of wonderful work in some of these areas. So Kim Talver, for instance, in uh, CRC and mm-hmm. in Indigenous Peoples at the University of Alberta. Um, there, there are many people who are working kind of at the intersection of some of those questions. So I, I can't wait to see the kind of work that comes out uh, from those areas in the coming years, certainly. Um, the other thing, though, is that uh, there there are these 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 things that are kind of gaps in uh, where the history of technology and modernity meet in Canada, but that have been explored in other places. So a while ago, um, Emily Thompson uh, wrote a fantastic book called The Soundscape of Modernity. So she's a historian at Princeton. Um, And it was basically about the kind of transformation, not only in what people heard, but in how they understood it. So a kind of a history of the senses for uh, the area between 1900 and 1933 in the United States. Um, And the interesting thing in, in the Canadian case is that there it turns out that there are actually a huge number of very, very um, 
important audio companies that actually get their start in Canada in the 20th century, partly because the NRC, the National Research Council, has a very uh, sophisticated anechoic chamber where people can actually test acoustic devices. Um, but nobody's actually written about how this kind of informs the kind of uh, soundscape of Canada in the, in the period and how it is that that also contributes to a kind of soundscape of modernity uh, during the period. So I think that that would be a wonderful thing to do. And then um, something that I know that you uh, work on, Sean, is also just the intersection with animal history. I mean, if I can give a small plug to the Animal Histories Conference that is coming up uh, at York in, it's in November 7th, isn't it? So of course you can. Yeah, okay, yes. great. <laughs> but just phenomenal, organized with our brilliant colleague, uh, Jennifer Bennell, uh, as well, and Marcel Martel. And um, it's I think that that intersection is fascinating because, of course, we often think of technologies as kind of machines and devices, but there's a very important way in which um, animals and organic um, uh, and organisms themselves also function as kinds of technology or at least at the intersection of technology and other things. Uh, and so I think that that would be a wonderful explanation, which allows us to cut across, you know, urban and rural histories and uh, histories certainly of the modern period itself. So I think that that would be great to see. And Blair, what about for you? What's on the horizon or what would you like to see on the horizon for histories of technology in the modern in Canada? I mean, I agree with everything that Tina and Edward have already said. I think it is important that that the future of the study of science, technology, and modernity in Canada turns its lens even more than it already has to look to examining these sorts of uneven modernities, not just indigenous and settler modernities, but rural urban unevenness, regional unevenness, linguistic unevenness, uh, that modernity is never a catch-all term. It's never, it never happens in all places at all times. And I also um think that, I mean, we started our interview today talking about uh, the perception of a national technological style in Canada and how that style um, has, has come to inform how Canadians imagine their sciences and technologies. And I think, too, uh, looking at modernity as an actor's category uh, is, I mean, it's, it, there are several chapters which do engage with this, but I, I, I do see that as, as a direction that the study of modernity in general, uh, especially in terms of science and technology, uh, that can, can, can truly go, that our actors believed what they were doing was modern and therefore embodied certain things. And it's worth dissecting what those are. Well, I do hope that listeners will pick up a copy of Made Modern Science and Technology in Canadian History from UBC Press. Uh, I want to thank our three participants. Thank you, Tina. Thank you, Edward. And thank you, Blair. Thanks very thank much you, to you, Sean. Sean. Thanks, Thanks, Sean. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Tina Adcock, Edward Jones Imhotep, Blair Stein, and me, Sean Courage. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast with your favorite podcast player, and leave comments. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. You can always find out more about environmental history research in Canada from the Niche website at niche-canada.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of Nature's Past. Mm-hmm.